as we come to God's Word. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for the many gifts you've given us. Lord, even today we rejoice in new life as Winifred Mertens joins us in worship for the very first time today at just a handful of days old. Praise God. We thank you. We thank you for the gift of new life that is found in your Son, and we thank you for your scriptures. As we read your scriptures now, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds that we would not simply understand it, but that we believe it and love it. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm reading this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and verses 22 to 35. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 857, and in the following Jesus Bible on page 1100. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time gave came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go for children's worship, they can join Miss Mary Francis and our team as they go across the way for children's worship. 
James is pumped. So you all know the Christmas story uh, with the manger and the baby Jesus, but I wonder how well you know the weeks following. So about five weeks after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated to God, followed by a redemption sacrifice. And that was all kind of in accordance with the laws from Exodus 13 and Leviticus 12. So Joseph and Mary are being good, godly Jewish parents, raising Jesus according to the law of God. And no doubt this day of Jesus' dedication in the temple is a really big deal. This is an exciting, joyful, celebratory moment for Jesus' earthly parents. This is like, you know, when parents bring their children to be baptized. It's a time for grand celebration. But the celebration is interrupted by a stranger. Imagine it, moms. You've got this big moment in your child's life. You go to church, all ready to celebrate. And as you're walking in, a stranger approaches, takes your child from you, and begins to speak a prophecy over him. It's a really odd moment. Mary and Joseph, the text says, wonder. They're amazed. They're shocked at what is happening here, maybe even a little bit frightened. But what Mary and Joseph don't know about this guy, we do know. Jesus' biographer, Luke, fills us in on who he is. Look at verse 25, chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. So Simeon is is a really, uh, he's in a really rare class of people, which is people who had the Holy Spirit living in them before the day of Pentecost. That puts Simeon in the ranks of figures like Moses David, Samuel, Elijah, and John the Baptist. So when Simeon opens his mouth and blesses God, we know that we should be listening to what this guy says. And what he says is kind of unthinkable. He tells the future. Simeon's words to God, Joseph, and Mary reveal the rest of history. The Holy Spirit had told Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when Simeon speaks, he tells us what the Holy Spirit revealed to him. He tells us what Jesus would accomplish in his life. He tells us how Jesus would accomplish that. And then he tells us the long-term results of Jesus' life. He kind of gives this prophecy that that fills up not only Jesus' life, but the rest of history. Simeon really ruins the end of the story. He tells us how things are going to wrap up. So first... He tells us that Jesus would finally restore Israel from her exile. How does verse 25 describe Simeon? Look again, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon, Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? It means he's just like our friend Ethan the Ezraite that we saw low those four weeks ago in Psalm 89. 
600 years before Simeon, Ethan was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was lamenting and weeping over the state of Jerusalem. The difference is that Ethan lamented Israel when they were living in exile in Babylon. Remember 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, carried them away in captivity. And so Ethan, at his wit's end, is praying for God's people to be restored. Simeon's doing the same thing, but they're not in another country anymore. They're living in their own homeland. Even though they had been let go from Babylon and gone back to Israel, there was still a problem. What is it that Simeon is grieving? What is the consolation that Israel needs? Well, first of all, they've got a spiritual problem. Why was Israel carried away into Assyria and Babylon to begin with? Because of unrepentant sin. They would not listen to God. They would not repent of their sin. And so he said, I'm going to discipline you and send you away into exile. Well, guess what? They're back in the land, but their hearts are still not changed. They still have a sin problem. But they had more than a a spiritual issue. They also have a relational problem. Israel's society was filled with schisms and divisions politically and religiously. And, of course, they had the same relationship issues that you and I have in their homes and in their work situations, which led to political problems. Israel at this time was not self-governing. They were living under Roman occupation. And God had promised hundreds of years ago that there would always be a king on the throne of David to rule over God's people. So here's my point. Israel might be back in the land, but they have not been saved from their exile, nor from the problems that led to their exile in Babylon. So God revealed to Simeon that what Ethan had longed for back in Psalm 89 was finally coming. One would be born who would save Israel, not just from the outer external things, these political issues and these geographical issues. He's going to save them from top to bottom. He's going to save them from their sins. He's going to save them from their relational disconnection with God and with the people around them. And he's not just going to save them from their political enemies. He's going to save them from death. He's going to save them from Satan. He's going to save them from the world. The Christ is coming. Salvation is coming. Look at verses 29 and 30. As Simeon exclaims, he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. What does Jesus' name mean in Hebrew? It means salvation. So Simeon tells the future, this child means salvation for the people of Israel. Israel is finally going to receive the glory that is promised her. But the salvation that Jesus brings is not for that one people group. Jesus may be the Christ, meaning the king of Israel in the line of David, but he will be a savior for the whole world. And Simeon reveals that as well, that Jesus would restore all humanity from its exile. The problems that led Israel to exile in Babylon are the problems of all humanity. We still have these problems. Every human being has a sin problem that messes up everything, including any chance of a meaningful relationship with God. On top of that, we all have messed up human relationships, and we struggle with a fear of being forgotten, of being unloved. We all have enemies who slander us and hate us. It's not the Romans. It's other people. And it's also Satan. Things in this world are not as they should be. And Jesus came not only to save Israel, but to save the world through Israel. And Simeon sees that reality. 
of Jesus' mission to the Gentiles well before the Apostle Paul preached it or the other disciples, people of all nations would be saved from the power and guilt of indwelling sin. People of all nations would be restored to God and to each other. People of all nations would be set free from injustice to live under the reign of Jesus forever. The salvation of Israel would extend to the whole world. Look again at verses 29 through 32. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon turns out to be the first gospel preacher. He already knows what Jesus is going to do. He tells the future, but he knows more than what Jesus will accomplish, which is salvation. Simeon knows how Jesus is going to accomplish that salvation. So how will Israel be restored from exile? How will the Gentiles, all the nations, be saved by Jesus? Salvation from our exile is found by coming to grips with the kingship, teaching, and death of Jesus. So in the things that Simeon says here, and we'll see the second part in a second, he identifies three things that if you want to be saved spiritually, relationally, politically, and physically, you want to be saved in the ways he promised, you have to come to terms with. You have to come to terms with Jesus' kingship, Jesus' teaching, and Jesus' death. These three things are the dividing line of humanity and history. And if a person doesn't come to terms with these three things, they will not be saved by Jesus. They'll remain in their exile. They will not experience the consolation and joy that Simeon experienced on this day. So let's start with Jesus' kingship. Jesus' kingship is a dividing line of humanity. So as I mentioned earlier, the word Christ is not a surname. It's not like Joseph and Mary, that was their last name too. No, it's a title. So Christ is a Greek word that in Hebrew is the word Messiah. And if we were going to translate it into English, it would be anointed one. These are all just synonyms translated from different languages. Anybody remember who in the Old Testament got anointed? Kids, you all know who got anointed in the Old Testament? June, what do you got? David got anointed, so a king got anointed. There were some other, other offices, other people got anointed too. Prophets, priests, and kings all got anointed, right? And so we could see a coloring of those three different offices in this title, Christ, Messiah, Anointed One. But when you read the Old Testament, when the word uh, Meshiach or Messiah, Anointed One, is used, it tends to have sort of a royal co- uh, connotation to it. So instead of saying Jesus Christ... We could say King Jesus. That would be an appropriate rendering kind of in in common tongue. So let's see how Simeon describes King Jesus. Verse 26, and then uh, we'll jump down to verse 29 again. Verse 26, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, anointed one, King. Verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So what does Simeon say about Jesus? Well, first he says he's the king, that Jesus is the king of Israel and her highest glory. 
So Jesus was born into the house and lineage of David. That's why they went back to Bethlehem for the census, which means he is heir to the throne. And through Jesus, Israel would not simply be restored to her former glory under David and Solomon. Through Jesus, she would reach the heights of her glory. How? Listen, folks, this might blow your mind if you, you don't read like through the whole Bible year after year after year. Jesus is the reason Israel exists. Jesus is the reason that God chose Abraham and established his family as a people. It was all about Jesus from the beginning. What did God say to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12? Oh, sorry. Did y'all get that one? I got excited and went past it. I'll have to hesitate. Otherwise, 30 people are going to ask me after that. I say, I missed the blanks. All right. This is what he said to Abraham. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why did God pick Abraham out of the pagan nations and say, I'm starting a new country. I'm starting a new people through you. What was the point? So that Jesus would be born. To be salvation to the whole world. Simeon says he is Israel's glory. That means he is the one through whom Israel will save the whole world. All of humanity's sin is going to be undone. Everything that happened back in the Garden of Eden, this one is going to complete it. So through Israel, a new humanity is going to be born who serves the King of Israel, Jesus. And that people, those who kneel to King Jesus, will inherit the world. Jesus is the king of Israel, and he is her highest glory because Jesus is also the light of the non-Jewish world. So Jesus was born into Israel to be her king so that Israel would shine like a beacon of hope to the nations. Why? So that all the nations would repent of their kingdoms and run to him, that they would repent of their sins and run to him. And in kneeling to King Jesus the nations would be brought into the people of God that would inherit the world. This is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 2 when he said this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The kingship of Jesus means peace for the earth. Consolation to Israel and a light to the Gentiles. Salvation to all nations. And here's what that means not only for Simeon, but for us. The unrivaled universal kingship of Jesus is the only source of lasting unity for our divided world. 
Go pick a stranger today when you go out to lunch. If you go out to lunch or you're out at the store getting some last-minute gifts, pick a stranger and ask them, do you think our world is divided? What are they going to tell you? Yes, probably with some expletives attached to it. It doesn't matter. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, Independent, they all agree our country is divided. Christian, agnostic, atheist, Muslim, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, they're all going to tell you society is not as it should be. And everybody has an answer to the, the problem. They have a solution that they offer. Education, moralism, personal liberty, regulation, censorship. Simeon doesn't stutter in giving the solution. There is one true, lasting unity for this world. There is one hope for humankind, and it is the unrivaled rule of Jesus that will be ushered in on the day of his return. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter what people group you come from. In Christ, all nations are being brought into one kingdom, one family, one people called Israel. And that makes Jesus' kingship a dividing line of humanity. If you want to live in humanity with people, you must recognize and kneel to King Jesus, and they must as well. But if you want to live with the brokenness and fracture of human civilization, there are lots of other options available for you. There are lots of other kings out there vying for your affection. But there's only one king that was born to restore humanity, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the glory of Israel, and the light of revelation to the Gentiles. He was born to be your king. So have you submitted to his kingship? Does your life belong to him? Kneel to him today. His kingship is a dividing line of humanity. But that's not the only thing. Jesus' teaching is also a dividing line of humanity. So after Simeon takes Jesus from Mary, and he makes this powerful statement, how do Joseph and Mary respond? I really wish I could have seen the looks on their faces when he grabbed them. It's just wonderful. Verse 33. That's why I'm using a handheld today. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So Simeon says that Jesus, this baby, is going to lead to the rise and fall of many in Israel. How? Also, it's not lost on me that that word rise can also mean resurrection. But how will Jesus do this? Will he level the playing field like most kings? Will he come by force? Will he use military might and political schemes and manipulation to humble the mighty and elevate the lowly? No. Look at it again, verse 34 into verse 35. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It was by revealing people's hearts that he would humiliate the lofty. It is by revealing our hearts that he would lift up and even resurrect the poor and abused. How would he do this? Through his word that he taught. Through the things that Jesus said, it would crack people's sternums open and expose their real guts to the world. And people would be brought down. And others would be lifted up. Righteous men would turn out to be just 
awful, depraved sinners. Poor men would be exposed as rich. Orphans and widows would be shown to be loved and included in a family much larger than they could ever imagine. Even sinners would be revealed as righteous through his teaching. The sinner, the orphan, the cast out, the Gentile, the poor, how would they respond to this? With joy. But the righteous, the powerful, the rich, the law keeper, what would they do with this message? (laughs) They would oppose it, even to the point of nailing him to a cross. Jesus' teaching is the dividing line of humanity. Listen, Jesus didn't teach mysterious ideas to be contemplated, nor did he teach broad ethics that any person can accept. He was no mystic or philosopher. Jesus didn't say things, so we go, hmm, and go spend years contemplating those things. No, Jesus was the king whose words you must either accept and love, and we could add obey, or we can reject and hate them. There's no middle ground. There's no liking Jesus and not following Jesus. There's no appreciating what Jesus said and not believing him. Jesus' teaching is the dividing line of humanity. So the question I really, really implore you to consider is this. Do you know what he taught? Have you personally ever heard, read what he taught? Have you grappled with the clear teachings of Jesus? You cannot call yourself a Christian if you have not hung upon his words, because his words define what it means to be a Christian. His words are the dividing line. He's king. Therefore, his words have not just value, they have force. So I encourage you, really consider this, maybe for your new year. If you've never read the four biographies of Jesus, the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read them and take your time. Chew on what Jesus said. Believe what Jesus said. Love what Jesus said. He is your king. And if you believe his words, you'll be lifted up. You'll be exalted even from death itself. You will become the best version of you, which for the record (laughs) looks like Jesus who was nailed to a cross and through the cross found glory. But if you don't know Jesus's words, if you don't, believe and love his words, you won't be exalted. You will be humbled to the point of being lost altogether. Jesus's kingship and teaching are the dividing line of humanity. But there's one final dividing line that Simeon calls to mind, and that's his death. Jesus's death is a dividing line of humanity. So in the middle of Zechariah's prophecy, Simeon says something directly to Mary. And of all the things he says, it's the most foreboding I know you saw it, but we'll read it again, verses 34 and 35. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon says that Jesus will be a sign to be opposed because of his teaching, but then a sword is going to pierce Mary's soul as well, what's being foreshadowed. Simeon knows that the opposition that Jesus will face will cause Mary suffering too. And we know from the four gospel accounts that Jesus' own mother was there on the day that he was crucified. She would watch her own son die. She would join him in his pain. Now, we don't want to focus on that statement to the exclusion of the rest of Simeon's statement. How does verse 35 end? 
What is the effect of what Jesus and Mary will go through in verse 35? A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The totality of Jesus' ministry, both his teaching and his death, expose the thoughts of many. Restated, the end of Jesus' life has always been a point of disagreement among people. Just as his teaching forces you to do something with it, you can't be neutral to what Jesus says. His death is the same way. His death demands a response. Either you believe that Jesus was God, that he died for the penalty of sinners' sins, and that he came back from the dead, or you don't. His death demands a response of faith or unbelief. And the result is that his death becomes the dividing line of humanity. Every human being must decide whether Jesus is the resurrected king to whom we owe allegiance or whether he was a liar, a lunatic, or a legend. There's no middle ground because of his teachings. What did Jesus say about himself? He said that he would die. He said that he would be raised from the dead, that he would ascend to the Father, and one day he would come back to judge all humanity and to restore the world forever, to fill it with his kingdom. So either that was true, and Jesus is coming back soon to console not only Israel but the whole world, or he was a liar or a crazy person or a made-up story. What do you believe? What do you believe? Jesus' death is a dividing line of humanity. Now, Simeon had a very particular belief about Jesus' kingship, teaching, and death, and it gave him comfort. Go back to verse 27. And Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The language in verse 29 is really evocative. He basically says, thank you, God, you're letting me go now. I know we had moments of praying for Lisa that way in those last days. It was time. She was weary. Simeon is weary. It's almost like God's promise was a curse to him. He couldn't go until he had seen Jesus. Despite the chaos around him and the pain that Israel was going through, Simeon saw the spiritual problem. He saw the relational problem. He saw the political and physical problems, and he longed for consolation to the point he wanted to die. So finally, he sees the baby and he says, Lord, you're letting me go. You're letting me go in peace. But Simeon He's not going out in despair. He's going in peace. Why? Because he's seen the king. He's seen the one who will restore not just Israel, but the whole world. Simeon won't see it in his day, but he will see it in the resurrection. So the question, brothers and sisters, is this. Have you come to terms with Jesus? Have you dealt seriously with his kingship, with his teachings and his death? Have you had all your inner thoughts exposed by him? Have you found in him a comfort that points your eyes toward eternity? Jesus' kingship, teaching, and death are a dividing line of humanity. And so I encourage you, especially at Christmas and as you consider your new year, to get serious about Jesus, to decide which side of history and humanity you're going to be on. 
Do you believe Jesus is king? Do you accept his teachings as good and true? Do you believe that his death was not his end, but that he was raised from the dead and that he's coming again soon? Do you believe that he died for sinners, including yourself? If you do, then you have hope ahead of you, a hope that can console even the most weary of hearts. Let's pray. God, what great news that the grief, the pain, the relational fracture, the joylessness, the weeping, it's all going to end with glory, with joy, with all things made right because Jesus, our King, has come. And so, Lord, I pray for the men, women, boys, and girls here this morning that if any of them have not truly dealt with you, Jesus, if they have not come to terms with your kingship, if they've not considered your teachings, Lord, if they have not come to you and sought the forgiveness purchased for them through your death, that today would be the day, that this Christmas they would receive the king of the world as their own. We pray this with great hope because we know that you love saving the world. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.